Welcome to Questions from the Closet. I'm Ben Shalati. And I'm Charlie Bird. Each episode, we discuss a question we commonly get asked as LGBTQ plus Latter-day Saints. We're not trying to answer this question or come to a consensus, but simply sharing our perspectives. Today's question is, what do the scriptures say about homosexuality? Ben and I are not terribly diverse, and we share many opinions and life experiences. For example, we have both read the entire standard works of scripture. However, there are some pretty big differences. For example, I didn't read all the standard works when I was 24. I read them all before I was 12. <laughs> That's very impressive. I was I was a nerd, and before I got the ironic priesthood, I was I was like very. I guess I still am, but I was I was very like religious, very pious, and I was like I want to make sure I know what I'm getting into before I get the priesthood. And so my grandpa had like tapes, like cassette tapes of all the standard works. So every night I would play them and read along, and it took me like forever <laughs> the old testament's long it's very long so i was i mean i was also hopefully pious and good but uh when i was so my best friend mitch in high school the the one i came out to uh-huh. uh he is a huge jokester and one day in sunday school he was like he would always make stuff up and so he was talking about this guy in the book of mormon who cut off people's arms and showed him to the king or like you are insane that did not happen he's like no i swear he's like no this happened like you are insane because <laughs> none of us had read the book of mormon and then when we were like 17 talking about going on missions i was like i should probably read the book of mormon so that's when i read it for the first time when i was 17 wow i and didn't I, know that about you and i read the old testament when i was like 24 and you had the audacity to be seminary president as a freshman? Well, I read the doc- so I read the Doctrine and Covenants <laughs> and then the New Testament and then the Book of Mormon. Awesome. Well, we like to provide a variety of voices and perspectives. And today we're joined by Dr. Eric Huntsman. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Eric, tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Eric and I am a professor of ancient scripture at BYU. I started teaching in 1994, so I'm older than I look. That was so long yeah, ago. I, I was one years old. I gra- <laughs> I graduated from BYU. How are you so well-preserved? What is your trick? Uh, I don't eat much, and I exercise compulsively, and good genes, I guess. Okay, all right. So anyway, I graduated from BYU in 1990 with a double major in classical Greek and Latin, which, what do you do with that? So I went to grad school and got an MA and PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in ancient history. So I was a Greek and Roman historian, met my wife in Philadelphia. She's a Jersey girl, got married the year before we took the BYU job. From 94 to 2003, I actually was in humanities. I taught classics. So I taught Greek and Latin, Greek and wow, Roman history, cool. mythology. I love that stuff. But then I, as I describe it to people, I got religion in 2003 and I transferred over to ancient scripture because what I really wanted to teach was the New Testament and what I really wanted to teach was ministry of Jesus. So I specialize in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. Cool. So that's what I do professionally. As I mentioned, I met my wife back east. She was working on her master's at a place called Drexel, which is the campus right next to Penn. And we have two children. We have a daughter named Rachel. She and her husband, Luke, moved in with us during COVID. They're supposed to be watching our house while we're in Israel. I'm supposed to be the academic director of the Jerusalem Center. but That sounds so cool. Can't get out of the country, thanks That's to the virus. Cool. I have a son named Samuel who's 18. He's our special needs son. He has autism. I always get a little verklempt, uh, to use a Jewish expression, talking about Sam because I think actually what we're going to talk about today, my heart was blown wide open by this boy. He was... He was diagnosed when he was three and a half, four. And because his life experience ended up being so much different than what we had hoped for him, because he doesn't have relationships, because he probably won't marry, I just, I learned to um, be a little bit more open to different experiences. You know, I just grew up and I was, even though I grew up back east, I'm from a, you know, sixth generation Latter-day Saint family. We were Mormons then, but now we're just Latter-day Saints. And, you know, I just grew up with all the normal church expectations. I served a mission in Thailand. You know, I was elders crumb president. I served in a bishopric in Philadelphia. I've been a bishop. I had all these things. I was just checking the boxes, being the typical faithful, hyperactive in the church Latter-day Saint. And then suddenly, one of the most important people in my life, we found out he wasn't going to have a life we have wanted for him. Mm-hmm. And it just made me look at things very, very differently. Uh, I mentioned that I was a bishop when I was a young man. I was downtown in Provo, down by the hospital and the power plant, the old power plant that's not there anymore. And, you know, I, I was working with uh, a lot of transient people in a very socioeconomically impacted area. And just suddenly my world that was so clean and the lines were so firmly drawn you know, there were people with psychological problems, there were people with economic problems, there were people with social problems. Uh, I gradually met people from the LGBTQ community, 
Uh, I made friends with people with different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And then suddenly it was not enough to just be your stereotypical Wasatch Front white bread, as my friend Tamu Smith calls those of us who are you know, uh-huh. pigment <laughs> pigment impaired. <laughs> I don't know if you know Tamu and Xandra Vains, the sisters in Zion. They're I, amazing. I know of yeah. them. So they, they've opened my eyes to many things. So anyway, that's just a little bit about me. I, that wasn't quite the normal introduction, but it will, I think, help explain a little bit about why I approach this particular issue the way I do. And since I think we're going to talk about homosexuality and the scriptures, I'm more like Charlie than Ben. Sorry, Ben. Uh-huh. I read the standard works compulsively as a child. I'm very obsessive-compulsive. I often will joke with people, obsessive-compulsive, yeah, it's a disorder, but we get more done than other people. <laughs> uh, we're very driven. Anyway, so when I, was a, when I was starting seminary at 14, it was Old Testament. And it's because I'm competitive. I read the Old Testament three times at 14. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we but are similar. But it's only because the teacher had one of those charts, you know. You put the, the stars uh, on stars them. out. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I was going to be the first one done. And then I was going to do it again. And then I was going to do it again. <laughs> and then I thought, well, then I'll read the rest of the standard works. And so I had this thing going on in seminary that each year I would read whatever text we were studying two or three times and then read everything else. Cool. So anyway, I love scripture and I love to talk about it. When I teach scripture, we use some pretty funky terms. There are things you actually probably already do, but sometimes I tell my students, if you learn the, the jargon for it, you know, the technical terms, sometimes when you use a different term or expression for something that you're already doing, it makes you look at it differently. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you know, we all know from First Nephi 19 about likening all scriptures to yourself. What's the word for that? Well, the technical term for that is exposition. You're taking something and applying it to yourself. The term for understanding the original meaning of a text to its initial audience is exegesis, which comes from the Greek to lead out the meaning. Actually, it's trying to establish the presumed original meaning of the text because... We don't know. We don't know for sure. That's that's exegesis. That's exegesis. Exegesis. But what we do is we look at the language and we look at the author and we look at the audience and the culture and we try to understand what that would have meant to the original audience. It's what I... To simplify it in a religion class, I say, what does it mean to them there then? And I always tell my students that you need to understand what a passage means to them there then before you do the us here now. Mm -hmm. Because although the Spirit can guide you and give you a personal interpretation and application of a passage, and that's great, sometimes we can become a little irresponsible or sloppy with our personal application. Mm -hmm. So if you can understand what the original meaning was to that initial audience, to them there then, it can kind of guide you in being responsible in your application or your exposition. Sometimes it's interesting, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off on a sidebar here. Sometimes a passage can mean something completely different to its original audience and can mean something valid and true, but completely different to us. An example that jumps to mind is John 5, 39. Search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And we always use that. And people we trust, right? Our moms, our seminary teachers, President Monson, church leaders have always used that passage to say we should search and study the scriptures. In Greek, it's actually unclear whether it's a command, search the scriptures, or whether it's indicative mood. You're searching the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And actually, if you look at the original context, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership in chapter 5. He's actually saying to them, you have your noses in those dusty old Torah scrolls, right? Your your scrolls of the laws and the prophets. Oh, but they're not going to save you. But they're not going to save you. Jesus is. So that's the exegetical meaning of that passage, which is completely opposite how we apply it. Yeah. It doesn't mean how we apply it's wrong. I mean, God can do whatever he wants with his word. And so we can use a passage to mean something else. But if you don't know what that original meaning was, sometimes you're missing a wonderful opportunity. So I'll often say to students, because I'm obsessive compulsive, I read my Book of Mormon every morning because President Benson told me back to in the 80s to do that. Yeah. If I read my Book of Mormon 20 minutes every morning and I think I'm going to be saved because I'm reading the Book of Mormon, I'm not going to be saved. It's because the Book of Mormon is another testament of Christ. So having both those meanings, the original meaning and the way we usually apply it today in mind, actually helps me search the scriptures more responsibly to find Jesus. That was a long kind of uh, sidebar, as I said. I don't want to get too much in the weeds. But when we're talking about something as, as difficult and sometimes as unclear as sexuality, it is important to understand how those passages would have been understood and applied to their original audiences before we can apply them in our own situation. And there has been, I I would suggest, a lot of, I don't want to say sloppy exegesis or exposition application, but it's uh, not very subtle. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes these passages have been used as bludgeons, right? 
and I think sometimes have caused more pain than they have encouraged people to yeah. control their behavior. Actually, colloquially, within the LGBTQ religious space, there there are certain Bible passages that are referred to as the clobber passages. Oh, well, so, so you I were, said bludgeon, you, you said clobber. Yeah. So <clears throat> I assume we'll get into some of those today. Sure. One of, one of them, when I made this realization about the scriptures and homosexuality, I like, it, it was like this huge moment for me, but it's actually pretty obvious that within like restored LDS scripture, Book of Mormon, Doctrine, Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price, it says nothing about it. Like it, it doesn't even broach the topic. So really what we're working from as we talk about homosexuality in the scriptures are just the New and Old Testament. Right. The only thing that comes close in Restoration Scripture is Doctrine and Covenants 59.6. And once again, you have to get it in its original context, and, and this is, is subtle. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery, nor kill, nor do anything like unto it. Years ago, I think Elder Packer, before his present Packer, used that passage, actually in discussion of abortion, I think. He was saying, don't kill or anything like unto it. And I have heard some people say, well, committing adultery, breaking a covenant for sexual behavior, something like unto that would be any sexual behavior outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the only passage as I was looking through the scriptures this afternoon ahead of this visit that I could find in Restoration Scripture that could be taken to allude mm. to sexual behavior which outside of marriage, which would include homosexual behavior. Yeah, I don't know why I find that so interesting. I, I, th- I guess it's because... Growing up, I assumed that like LDS scripture, LDS doctrine would would be like very anti-gay, and and it's actually interesting because I like I said I'd, I'd read the standard works multiple times even as a child and all throughout high school, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago when I re- like really I, I mean I, I've told the story before, but the first time I ever read the Book of Mormon through the lens of my orientation and not trying to pretend I was straight, just like as a gay man I read it, I was like. Oh, like th- there's nothing that's like a- attacking me here. Like it-, it all is building me. It and everything I found was was good and light. And it- and what didn't like hurt my testimony as I thought it would have. You know, there's a possible historical or cultural reason for it. If you want me to just venture a guess, and we were talking before this episode that I, I always want to be very careful to distinguish between what the scriptures are clearly teaching and what we think may be the reason. Go ahead and venture a guess, Okay, so I know nothing about, really, the history of homosexuality, but I I would assume, from what I know about broader history, that, for instance, Victorian England, 19th century into the 20th century, homosexuality, for various cultural reasons, was in the corners, was hidden, Mm -hmm. the love that couldn't speak its name. But the ancient world was very different. So the Hebrews, uh, the Israelite tribes, later the Jews, they were surrounded by people where homosexual behavior was much much more patent, open. In fact, it was ritual sometimes. It wasn't just behavior between individuals. It was sometimes ritualized, temple prostitutes, that kind of thing. And so there was a reason I would suggest, and we'll look at some of these passages in a moment, why Leviticus and Deuteronomy would address it head on, whereas Restoration Scripture didn't, is because it was so much more, I don't want to say it's much more prevalent, but it was more out in the open. Likewise, and I do know a lot more about this in Greco-Roman culture, homosexual behaviors of various kinds were much more around and open. And so there was a reason for Paul in Romans or 1 Corinthians to address it. That's just a guess, but I would suggest that the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament address certain homosexual behaviors because they were issues that were being openly discussed in their surrounding cultures. Whereas at the time of Joseph Smith, Doctrine and Covenants, I don't know about Book of Mormon peoples, but maybe it was the same among the Nephites and the Lamanites. That wasn't something that was openly discussed and exhibited, and so there wasn't as much reason to talk about it. Just a guess. Just a guess. It's funny because because of that, I feel like it has been very freeing for me because sometimes when I read the Bible, I kind of get hung up on those passages that like confuse me or make me like second guess my life or who I am and kind of make me feel excluded. But within the Book of Mormon, which is my favorite scriptural text, I love it because it doesn't say anything specifically or like I can't misinterpret anything. Like I don't have to worry about historical or cultural aspects of homosexuality in the ancient Americas. Like all of that's not there. So I can just like accept the gospel of Christ as the gospel of Christ for me, you know, does that make sense? Perfect sense. 
So, Eric, take us to the Old Testament. What's going on there? All right. Well, let me just mention, (laughs) (laughs) I actually took a few moments. I don't always prepare for these kind of things as well as I should, but I took some time this afternoon just to go over the standard passages, which I now know in your community are the clobber passages. So starting with Genesis 19.5, this is Lot and the angels and the people of Sodom, right? I mean, Sodom has historically given its name to certain kinds of homosexual behavior. There are allusions to that incident in Isaiah, and of course, Nephi quotes Isaiah, so that does show up in 2 Nephi 13.9. In Jude, for instance, he refers to the sin of Sodom. What's really interesting about that passage, even though 19.5 does talk about the men at Sodom surrounding Lot's house and saying, bring out these guests that we may know them, which is a euphemism for sexual behavior, that was not seen as the egregious sin of Sodom that led to its destruction. In fact, what's very interesting is you look at how the rabbis had talked about this. They talked about the sins of inhospitality and lack of charity among the Sodomites. Hospitality is a big thing in the ancient world, whether you're talking about the Semitic world, the Hebrews, or in Greco-Roman culture, if you've read the Iliad and the Odyssey, particularly the Odyssey, you know, hospitality was a huge deal. And because Lot had taken these angels into his home and provided them hospitality, he had to protect them, and, and the people of Sodom were abusing that. But there are actual references, for instance, in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel refers to this, I think it's in 1649 and 50, he talks about how the people of Sodom did not take care of the poor, how they uh, starved the widows, and how they were unkind to each other. So it was a much larger issue, not just that one particular thing at the, at the culmination when it says, bring out those men, your guests, betray the hospitality that you've extended to them so that we may, quote unquote, know them. Mm-hmm. Another way that sometimes this is looked at is not so much the particular kind of sexual behavior they were threatening, but the fact that they were threatening sexual violence. In fact, if you look at a passage in in Judges 19, it's the story about the Levite and his concubines, where his concubine is raped and and left for dead, and he cuts her up and sends her all over. But But the real problem there, the reason the Benjamites end up getting clobbered in war is because of sexual violence. So even if you're to look at the sin of Sodom as a sexual sin, in this case, same-sex behavior, it was sexual violence and rape that really seems to have been the thing that pushed it over the edge. This wasn't consensual sex. Right. So that one particular passage obviously is one that we know, and it's entered legal codes, right? Sodomy, anything besides typical straight heterosexual intercourse. So you're saying that sodomy should be referred to as inhospitality. Now. Inhospitality, should, not caring for it. the poor, or yeah. but sexual violence. See, rape should certainly be considered that. Yeah. Now, the passages, which of course, particularly for, for gay men, are, are hard, I guess, bludgeon passages, are Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013, where there's direct discussion about not lying with a man as you lie with a woman. And I, I certainly think the application of that as, a, as an active, faithful Latter-day Saint, I believe any sexual behavior outside of the bonds of sacramental marriage, I, I've decided to use that term now in the age of marriage, equality or same-sex marriage, you can have whatever legal or civil contracts you want, but sacramental marriage, the way we look at it, not just a legal marriage, but we call a marriage in, in harmony with the law of the Lord. Any sexual behavior outside of sacramental marriage is wrong. And so that would certainly be a legitimate application or exposition of those two passages. What's really interesting, particularly in chapter 18, it's part of Leviticus, a section of Leviticus sometimes called the Holiness Code. It's about setting apart the people of God as separate and distinct from the people who were in the land. The land is holy, so we've got to get rid of the Canaanites, and we can't do anything like they were doing. Now, there are different ways that particularly Protestant scholars have tried to understand this and perhaps reconcile this to, you know, a more inclusive uh, scriptural view. They will point out that most of what you get in chapter 18 is actually about incest. It's the different kinds of sexual behavior that you cannot have with a man or a woman within your family circles. I think that's actually straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. I think that's actually trying to rationalize it a bit too much Mm -hmm. because the very next verse is about bestiality and you don't see, you know, that animal as being a member of your family. But I I do think, as I was mentioning earlier, this was something that was really in the forefront. You know, we assume that Moses was at least the source or the authority behind these texts, whoever actually wrote the books attributed to him. But this was something that Moses, and I would say the Lord, really wanted the people of Israel to do, distinguish themselves from all the other peoples who were not holy, who were not set apart to his service. And so to just take those two verses out, 18, 22, and 20, 13, that talk about same-sex behavior, 
you should be giving equal opportunity to talking about not marrying a close relation. But in fact, just a few verses before, if I can be this direct, there's a discussion about having normal, straight, heterosexual intercourse during a woman's period. Right. And, you know, you don't have people talking at length and passing legislation based upon, um, you know, now our Jewish friends, you know, if they're Orthodox Jews, they actually don't do it during that period. But I think a lot of Christians don't pay any attention to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So those are the bludgeon passages of the Old Testament. But except for later prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah alluding to the sin of Sodom, and Ezekiel actually making that being uncharitable and not necessarily sexually violent— the next set of passages are all attributed to our friend, Brother Paul, right? Yeah. Uh, what did Jesus say about it? I'm going to get to him last because okay, Jesus great. trumps everyone, right? So, in fact, I have a, I have a standing, it's not a joke, it's, I'm deadly serious in my classes. The answer is always Jesus. In fact, when I give pop quizzes, reading quizzes, I always tell my students, if you don't know the answer to that question, write down Jesus and you'll get at least half credit. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is always the answer. So let's, we'll come back to that in a moment. But the but bludgeon passages, what did you call them? Clobber, clobber passages. The clobber passages are Romans 127, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. And these talks about people who are burning in their lust to each other, doing things which were unseemly to use the King James Version. The way Protestant exegesis sometimes tried to ex- explain this is it gets overly exegetical and looks at the particular words that are used. So, for instance, in Romans 1, there's a discussion about those who are, the King James term is unfortunate, it's effeminate, but it's actually, in Greek, it's uh, malakoi, which means um, soft. soft. But in that context, but it's not about mannerisms, so that's why effeminate's the wrong term there. It is about, it's probably in a sexual context about passive sexual behavior. And then there's also a term, arsenakotoi, which means men line with men, which is probably talking about active behavior. And I have seen Protestant exegetes bending over backwards trying to say particular sexual behaviors might be forbidden, but not homosexual behavior itself. You know, and maybe something else is, is appropriate. But I think the reason Paul's talking about it is both Rome and Corinth were huge urban centers with lots of decadence. And homosexual behavior was only one of a number of what we would call sinful behaviors in those cities. So those are probably why Paul was concerned about them. Well, and I feel like with that scripture, for me, it also, people people don't even talk about the, the part where it says they burned in lust mm-hmm. one with another. And I feel like that even reminds me of um, the Sermon on the Mount when when Christ is like, don't commit adultery in your heart, you know, right. like like right. burning with lust has never been godly and being consumed by sex and carnal desires and anything like that. And, you know, to just come out in the open here about, quote unquote, approved sexual behavior, I will often tell people, my wife's a, a therapist, she deals with all kinds of things, consent still must happen in marriage. It is wrong for a man to impose himself on his wife if she's not willing or vice versa. Yeah. And if one makes his partner an object, objectifies his wife, that I would call more lustful than loving. Yeah. So, you know, we can take, and we're going to come back to the words of Jesus in a moment. I brought a book with me, um, which is an attempt to try to understand both the clobber passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Yeah, Eric, is, we've never had a guest bring so many books. <laughs> sorry. And, and I didn't actually get it for the purpose of our discussion today. It's a, a man named William J. Webb. He's an evangelical scholar. Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals Exploring the Hermeneutics of Cultural Analysis. Now, that's a really big term I've got on. Uh, what does big hermeneutics title. mean? I'm going to have to unpack the terms. <laughs> hermeneutics is what we call the science and art of interpretation. So exegesis and exposition are both subsets of that. Okay. How do we interpret and understand Scripture? Exegesis is in its original context to its original audience. Exposition or application is to us as a secondary or modern audience. So at the end of this podcast, we have a quiz. And, it, and the question will be, what is exegesis? The answer will be Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> you get half, half points. points. <laughs> anyway, the reason I, this book came to my attention is I taught a, a seminar. I used to direct the Ancient Near and Studies program here at the Kennedy Center. And I did a seminar on women in the Bible. So I got it mostly for feminist hermeneutics and, and gender theory as we were trying to unpack because we can have problem passages with how women are treated in the Old Testament or in the Jesus Testament for that moment or in the modern age. Slavery is kind of an interesting thing as well because the Old Testament condones slavery. And Paul actually says, if you're a slave, don't 
don't escape it, just be a good slave. And actually, in the antebellum South, some people use the Bible to justify African slavery in the American South. So I'd gotten this book for that class on women in the Bible, that seminar. But what Webb does is he looks at these three issues, slavery, gender issues, and issues of homosexuality, and he tries to see how, as a believing Christian, he and his readers can perhaps understand how we should read those passages now. Now, I will go ahead and, spoiler alert, he comes down very traditionally at the end that homosexuality is not wrong, but homosexual behavior is. So he, he holds the line on that. But he points out that slavery is clearly wrong, and treating women unequally is wrong. And he suggests, he, he posits this model he calls a redemptive movement hermeneutic. Okay, hermeneutic is interpretive strategy. Mm-hmm. Redemption, we're trying to redeem us, make ourselves better. It's a movement because he sees God speaking to people in, the, in fact, think of Alma 30, is it 29 or 30? 29, where Alma wants to be an angel and mm-hmm. speak with the, uh-huh. you know, and he says, you know, God speaks to all people according to their own language, what part of his word he feels in his wisdom they're ready to have. And so what Webb suggests is that early in Israelite history, okay, because of the culture in which they lived, women and slaves played different roles. What he actually points out, though, is that women in many ways were protected more in Israelite law than they were in some surrounding cultures, and slavery was actually very regulated. So you couldn't beat your slave, you know, there were various kind of things. And then what he says is that you move into the New Testament, and women are able to prophesy and speak in tongues, and they follow Jesus, and so we're seeing a development there Yes, there is slavery, but Paul says, I would, in Philemon, for instance, if, if you really want to do me a favor, you'll let him go. And, and the way I describe this in terms of gender issues is I tell my students that, that God put Israelite women in a slightly more protected position than, say, Canaanite women were. And then Jesus was very liberating. And although there are a couple difficult passages in Paul about gender issues like there are about sexuality issues— Paul still is giving women a role in the Christian movement they hadn't had before. And so the way I describe it is you're moving the ball down the line. You're moving down the field. And so the question is, Christians, particularly at the time of Joseph Smith, they took Paul's position. He had moved the ball down to, say, the 20-yard line, and they assumed that's where it has to be fixed. But I would say Joseph Smith turning the key on behalf of the women in the Nauvoo Relief Society, Mm -hmm. he's actually advancing the ball farther. So that's what Webb means by redemptive movement hermeneutic. But what he points out is that in the case of slavery and gender issues, the rules first for Israel and then for the church were actually more empowering and liberating. There were more rules there. But what you find out with the sexual behavior is that the Israelites and the Christians actually had higher standards than the surrounding world. Does that make sense? So women were more protected and given more rights in Christianity but the rules on sexual behavior were firmer than those around them. So, so Webb actually does come out, but he, he makes some interesting points, though. He, he calls out Christian hypocrisy because he says, yes, we can say that marriage should be between a man and a woman and any sexual behavior outside of covenant marriage, he uses terms that are very familiar to us as Latter-day Saints, is wrong. But we have all of these straight, born-again Christians who are addicted to porn and are beating their wives, and he calls out what he calls Christian hypocrisy. Mm. And he comes down to a position which I think a lot of us in the church, allies I hope, families of members of the LGBTQ community, where we should be loving and accepting of people, even if we don't always accept their choices and behavior. Now, to something you texted me about when you invited me to do this episode, you said, what did the scriptures say about homosexuality? And I can say pretty clearly, nothing. (laughs) They say nothing about orientation. We have those, quote-unquote, clobber passages about homosexual behavior. And I think that's an important point, because when I was growing up, I'm 20, 30 years older than you two, when I was growing up, homosexuality equaled homosexual behavior, just like our sexual behavior, regardless of our orientation, is a choice. Somehow being homosexual is a choice. I mean, that's the way, that was the verbiage I heard. That's what I heard in the 60s and 70s and 80s, is that people chose to be gay, and as Tom talks in his book, Tom Christopherson talks in his book, merely accepting he was homosexual, he asked to be excommunicated because 
that was the assumption, this conflation of identity and orientation with behavior. Yeah. And I would say the scriptures don't address that. And, and the reality is in the ancient world, the Greeks didn't really have a word for homosexuality. They had all kinds of words for all kinds of sexual behavior. But the reality is no one... I'm not saying that people no, I, weren't I, gay or lesbian in the ancient world and didn't have the orientations we describe it. That's just not the way they discussed it. They just discussed behaviors. Yeah. Whereas we talked for a long time about people and their labels and conflated that with their behaviors. Right. Terminology is so important. And I think people trip up on it quite a bit. I, I had a couple of thoughts as you were talking. I guess, first off, I, I was looking into the history of the word homosexual and a lot of different interpretations of the Bible, like the New International Version, things like that include the word homosexuality. But that didn't really start until like 1946 mm-hmm. from what I was reading. And I just thought that was interesting that like, I, I think people live under this guise of like, oh, well, the Bible is very clear in what it says about homosexuality. And I'm kind of like, well, the word didn't exist. And also, it's not really that clear. <laughs> well, to go back to those two terms in Romans, it was talking about receptive behavior and active behavior, but it didn't talk about ality. Right. <laughs> you know, whether it be heterosexuality, homosexuality, any kind of ality. It's kind of like the Book of Mormon tells us we shouldn't have any kind of ites, right? Right. You know, it's, and, and that those terms have changed in your lifetime also, right? In the 90s, I, the church... I'm not going to say change, but more inspiration, I think, came to our leaders, and they realized it was important to distinguish between any kind of behaviors yeah. and who people are. And as we're reading these and go, kind of talking through them, I'm also pretty aware of the fact that it's only referring to, or the way we look at it, it's only male. Like, like homosexuality isn't exclusive yeah, to it, males. Well, I think it's, is it First Corinthians? I think it's Romans. It actually talks about women as well. Oh, does it? Yeah, that's the only possible reference I'm aware of to lesbianism. But one of the Paul passages does talk about women. But it is overall mostly male. But the reality is most ancient discourse was male. Was male. Yeah, men exactly. Men writing for men. And I feel like even the definition of marriage in the ancient days was different. And like, like gender roles were different, like as far as... I mean, you kind of talked about that a little bit, but, and maybe I'm ignorant, but people talk about how like women were owned and were more property based and marriage was more of like an economic or financial. And often had a lot to do with social alliances. Yeah. So, so I think, uniting families. I think you can kind of get in some tricky water when you're trying to superimpose the way we view marriage and religion now onto a culture where we, we are working with like imperfect translations as well. Like we're not reading it in its original Hebrew and the Bible is kind of like, a conglomeration of different accounts. It's, I don't think it was, at least for me, I've never believed that it was fully intended to be like all of everything God wanted us to have, which also is another wonderful reason why we have the Book of Mormon to kind mm-hmm. of like give context to that. And then, and then one other thing I pointed out, cause I was kind of looking through these, these passages too. And in Romans and the first verse in the very next chapter in Romans two, Paul is condemning those who misuse God's teachings to judge others. And I just, I just thought that was kind of like interesting how th- this verse is so used to condemn homosexuality and and judge people who are born gay, and then in the very next verse it says, "Please don't misuse God's word to judge others and do harm." You were mentioning those passages and and what happens afterwards. I have a kind of an exercise for my religion students. I have them write about passages of Scripture. They do what they call an exegetical analysis. It's just a little four-paragraph paper, so two pages on a passage they choose each unit. So they have to do three during the course of the semester. And I have them ask historical, literary, and theological questions about their passage. But the literary questions are, what kind of writing is this? Who's it written to? And what comes before and after? And that's so important. We have a tendency to do something called cherry pick. We take a verse and we use it as a proof text. And it's not that the, the application that we're giving it isn't legitimate, you know, being baptized of water and the Spirit. I mean, that's an important proof text. Even though it's a proof text, it's teaching us something true and important. But if we don't see what comes before and after, we can take something out of context or not understand the full picture. And so that one passage in 1 Corinthians 6, which is about, you know, fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that was the soft ones, and the abusers themselves with mankind, those are men who lie with men. The next, and then it talks in the next verse about thieves and drunkards. So verse 10, we still have a list of sinners. But 11, so here's a verse that comes right after it that's so beautiful. And such were some of you... But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
these particular sexual sins are just two in a list of all kinds of sins that were part of the surrounding culture in Corinth, and the Corinthian saints had been involved in all those things, but it didn't matter because of Jesus. They had been washed, they'd been justified, which meant that their sins were forgiven, they were brought in harmony with law, they were sanctified, they were made holy, which is not just making you back to ground zero, right? I often, when I try to explain justification and sanctification, I say, if you have the law which defines sin, that's base zero, and you sin, you go down minus five. Justification brings you back to zero, it forgives you. But what sanctification does, and we think it's, it's misleading because sanctify could mean cleanse in English, but in Greek and in Hebrew, it means make holy. It takes you to plus five. So the atonement first brings you back to base zero. It forgives your sin, brings you back in harmony with law, but then it transforms you and makes you more like God and exalts you. And that's the point. It doesn't matter who you are or what you did. When you are justified and sanctified through the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, once again, when I was growing up, we had this big thing about ranking sins. And I think part of that's because we know that murder is, you can't undo murder. And, you know, sexual sins are very grievous. But we had a great time ranking our sexual sins, you (laughs) know, and my fornicating was bad, but nothing as bad as any of you do in homosexual stuff. You know, a single sin can set you apart from God. And yet all of those things can be overcome by the grace of Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, you had asked earlier, and I, I, I hadn't dodged it because I always want to talk about Jesus, but what has Jesus taught about it? Nothing, right? Jesus does not address the issue of homosexual behavior clearly at all. He does, of course, talk about marriage. And that's the closest I could come as I was trying to reflect upon this. You know, Charlie has, has talked movingly about how the Book of Mormon is a lifeline for him because it just testifies to him of truth and brings him to Christ and doesn't have clobber passages that could set him off. I, I don't want this passage from, from Mark, and there's a parallel in Matthew, to set anyone off who doesn't feel like she or he can be in a heterosexual marriage in, in this life or ever. That's another issue I'd like to, I'd like to hear as much from you as talk because this is, this is your life. I'm looking at it as from the outside. I know marriage and the promise about whether you're going to have every blessing in the next life or not is a complicated one. You know, I mentioned my son at the beginning. It was very easy for me as I first became sensitized to LGBTQ issues to say, oh, this is just another disability in life. You know, just like my son can't have a relationship, won't get married in this life, but I've been promised that in the resurrection will be made whole. I didn't realize that sometimes the way the rest of us glibly talk about this can actually be hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave a devotional that addressed some of these issues back in August of 2018, and as a result, I, I spoke at North Star once. And in my preparation for North Star, a gay friend warned me. He said, Eric, don't do the disability thing. Yeah. <laughs> because I have friends who feel very strongly that that is their eternal identity. And the reality is we don't know. What do the scriptures say about homosexuality? Nothing. What do they say about its origins? Nothing. What do they say about its end? Nothing. So I understand that that talking about this can be triggering for some in the LGBTQ community. But it is true that Jesus in the earliest, Mark's earlier than Matthew, which is why I always cite Mark first. This is Mark 10, 2 through 13. It's actually in the context of a Pharisaic question, you know, is it okay to divorce a wife? And Jesus says, um, well, Moses allowed you to do it because of the hardness of your heart, but it shouldn't be that way because in the beginning, and he alludes to Genesis 1-2, that's what Webb and evangelical Christians will call a a creation mandate. Mm -hmm. God created man and woman, what God has joined asunder, don't ever separate. So Jesus clearly endorses heterosexual marriage as coming from God, which, of course, as Latter-day Saints and the Proclamation family, we certainly accept as well. No surprise there. But, you know, what is really striking because of our our cultural as well as our religious surroundings and, and acculturation, the Scriptures actually talk a lot less about marriage than you assume. Yeah. You know, I've seen the seminary questions. I do home studies seminary with my son since he can't do release time or I would really have to work through it with him. And, you know, the manual is like, so what does the Old Testament teach you about marriage? I'm like, well, there's a lot of polygamy going on. and There's a lot of forced marriage. I mean, there it wasn't the clean, nice temple marriages that we experience or talk about or celebrate, at least in the church today. And there's actually not as much of it in the New Testament either, or the Book of Mormon for that matter. I mean, you've got section 132, but that's fraught with some of the plural marriage things even. Part of it may be because it was such a given in all societies 
that there wasn't the need to talk about its importance and sanctity as much. But Jesus clearly does espouse marriages from God. There is one passage, and I, I don't know that I can firmly say, I promise you I would not say anything the Scriptures didn't clearly say. Mm-hmm. So this is just me wondering with you. There's, in Matthew's version of the marriage passage, this is in Matthew 19, 3 through 9, he's talking about, you know, don't get divorced except for adultery. And after the Pharisees leave, Peter says, wow, if I can't get rid of her, maybe it's better not to marry at all. I mean, I'm being a little flippant there, but it's almost like the disciples are saying, if you can't get divorced for any cause, you know, what if it's just impossible to live with her? She doesn't cook. I mean, who knows what he was thinking? And in the Matthean version, I better read this rather than paraphrase it because I don't want to get it wrong. Jesus actually says, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. This idea that heterosexual marriage is a gift from God and should be indissolvable. It should be permanent. He said, not everyone can accept that, though. And then he has this interesting passage in verse 12, for there are some eunuchs which are born from their mother's womb, And there are some which are made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, clearly here, a eunuch doesn't have to be literally a castrated male. You know, it could be suggesting some people are born with birth defects that don't let them function sexually or perhaps emotionally, like a person with autism like my son. Some are made eunuchs by men. Well, clearly there was a lot of slavery going on and eunuchs were created. But that last line, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, there's a horrible story of an early Christian father named Origen who struggled with chastity and in a moment of, you know, excessive piety, castrated himself with a piece of glass, trying to make himself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. But let's just say for a moment that this is... We're not endorsing that. Not endorsing it. And once again, this is me just thinking aloud with you, right? I'm not saying the scripture's clearly teaching this, but it's something that came to me once when a student, he didn't say that he... It was an orientation issue for him, but I could just tell the pain with which he asked the question about marriage, that there was something going on there. And so I I felt a little prompted to explore this verse with him. If we're using eunuch symbolically for people who are not marrying permanently, as Jesus has just laid out to the Pharisees and his disciples, someone who, and I know this is a choice that I can't even relate to, but for those who elect a life of covenant keeping, which might mean a life that's single, to keep the covenants and receive the promises they've been given, could that not be those who make themselves eunuchs for heaven's sake? Now, once again, I understand this can be triggering, and I don't want to be flippant about it as an outsider. I I was brought to my attention about the same time I was speaking at North Star that someone, a leader actually, had said to someone, you know, it's not any different than being a single woman doesn't have a chance to get married. And this person's response was, a single woman can pray every night that she'll meet and marry. I have to pray every night that I don't fall in love. So I understand these are hard issues. Yeah. You know, Eric, as you're talking about eunuchs, I, I'm reminded of a, a scripture in Isaiah 56 where he's talking directly to eunuchs and, and he says, I will give you a name. Yeah, I'll give you a name. And a, like within my, in my house, within my walls, I'll give you a place of name better than a son's and a daughter's. And I don't know if you're aware of this. The museum and memorial to the Holocaust in Jerusalem is called Yad Vashem. Of course I Which in that. Hebrew is hand and a name, but it's referring to that Isaiah passage that these eunuchs who were not allowed to participate fully in the temple practice and felt like they were a dry tree and they would not have posterity, Jesus basically says to him, oh, Jehovah, Jehovah basically says to them, I will give you a name and a place in my house. You know, it reminds me, is it um, Samuel's mother, Hannah, and she's kind of in a plural marriage situation and her peniha, I think is her her sister wife is giving her a hard time because she doesn't have any children and she kind of complains she kind of complains to her husband Elkanah says you know she's got all these kids and I have nothing he says aren't I better than 12 sons to you typical male thing to say right (laughs) chauvinist and and that's why I wanted to to qualify everything I said because I shouldn't be telling you how to feel experience and and I'm sorry for getting once again for clamped about it I've I've took very seriously when President Ballard, what was it, November 2017, Mm -hmm. in that great devotional questions and answers, he said, we need to hear and listen to our homosexual sisters and brothers. 
And so I always feel a little amiss when I try to venture suggestions because I need to listen to the experiences you're having and how difficult it is, how rewarding it is. That's where a lot of us mainstream members of the church would do better to listen more. And Eric, I think that's really beautiful, and thank you for saying that. And just this idea that eunuchs were kept out of the temple and Jehovah saying, you've got a place in my house. The heavenly temple. Yeah, I think that's incredibly beautiful. I didn't know that. That is beautiful. Could you read the the first, like, a a couple, before the eunuch scripture, you read something about, like, to whom it is given. Yeah, so he's just given the big, long speech to the, the Pharisees have posed the questions about whether you can divorce for any cause. And by the way, this was actually a big topic of debate between two different branches of the Pharisees. There's something called the Beit Hillel and the Beit Shammai, a really strict group of Pharisees that said, Moses said, you can divorce her, just put up a, a bill of divorcement. She burned the dinner, she's out. But a lot of the Pharisees were actually pretty compassionate. I often tell my students, don't diss the Pharisees all the time. I know Matthew does, but the other gospel authors don't as much. They don't take a hypocritical oath to be a Pharisee. I mean, they were actually the progressives in, Ju- in Second Temple Judaism. And the Beit Hillel, the group of the House of Hillel, said, no, we should love our wives. We shouldn't just divorce them for any cause. So the Pharisees were actually asking Jesus to to take a stand in an argument they were having in their own group. Mm -hmm. And so he's given this big, long thing about, you know, God created man and woman, and a man shall leave his father, and a mother shall leave her home, and they shall cleave together, and what God has put together, don't, don't separate. The Pharisees leave. And then Peter says, his disciples say to him, not Peter, I'm not going to blame it all on him, if this is the case of the man, be so with his wife, it's good not to marry. (laughs) There's no escape clause. (laughs) I'd rather not get entangled. And Jesus says, but he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save them to whom it is given. It seems to, I mean, reading between the lines, once again, leaving exegesis and just speculating a little bit, so this is just our opinion, it seems to be opening the door that Jesus recognizes that not everyone hearing him then or reading him now will be in that situation. Not everyone will be in that marriage, man and woman, that we should not separate. Mm-hmm. And the wording there was interesting to me because it says, except to, to him who is given. Is that, is that yeah. what it says? Except him to whom it is given. Yeah, and, and I don't know, I, Ben. I I feel like we should just honestly do a full <coughs> other episode about like marriage, as we're, as we're talking. But but this is just making me think about like when I was really wondering if I should like I was going to try for a mixed orientation marriage. Like that was my plan A, which was plan B. Like plan plan A was don't be gay, <laughs> and and my plan, pray it away. Right, right. Um, that didn't work, and, and I was like. I was all in for heterosexual marriage, a mixed orientation marriage. I guess not necessarily heterosexual, but marrying a girl. And I was trying so hard and it was killing me. It it was destroying me. I was depressed. I was sick. I did not want to kiss girls. I couldn't even fathom like creating a child. I didn't want that. And I was just like ramming my head against this wall, trying to keep that commandment that I thought I had covenanted that I thought was given to me to, to be married, to, to be exalted. And I was reading in DNC 132. Is, is that it with when it talks about the new and everlasting covenant? And I actually read this verse too. And I prayed and I just had a, a very strong feeling that that is not your commandment. You are not one to whom that has been given. And so you're going to be okay. And I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I say, I don't want everyone to like think what I think is what you should do. Like everyone is different, but like when I went to God and was like, God, I'm dying here. Like I need something. The scriptures, they helped me. Mm-hmm. And to me, it wasn't a scapegoat. Like, like someone could listen to the story that I just told and be like, Oh, you found a scapegoat to where you could skirt that commandment. And to me, that's not, that's not what it was at all. It felt like a relief. It felt like accessing the power of Jesus Christ and being held and safe, you know, in something that I viewed as a commandment that was just hurting me and destroying me internally. And I don't know. It's just, you know, once again, kind of from an outside perspective, watching how not just society has changed in the last 30 or 40 years, in some ways for the better, some ways perhaps not. 
but even within the church, you know, I remember when President Hinckley said, marriage is not a solution to this problem. That was probably in the late 80s, maybe even the 90s. Uh-huh. Because it had been suggested. it had been before. As, you know, and, and one of the first things, once again, that I hadn't fathomed, because growing up, homosexuality wasn't about orientation, it was about behavior. You know, we didn't understand, in fact, I was... I didn't understand my own sexuality. I didn't understand that it wasn't just about physical acts. It was about bonding. It was about love. It was about connection. Right. And it wasn't just... And that's why these particular passages in the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament aren't enough. This is why we have to have the Spirit and we are waiting on revelation from authorized sources to understand more about the cause and the destiny and the resolution. Because that was really transformative for me to realize this wasn't just about not doing X, Y, and Z. It was about how people related to other people and how they were bonded and how they were attracted. You know, I I didn't realize it was not just about not wanting to kiss a girl or make a baby. It was not about having that kind of connection. And from what I understand, this is sometimes issue in mixed orientation marriages. Yeah. Because sometimes the heterosexual partner is the one who's really being cheated, not because of the sex, but because she or he doesn't feel as fully loved and cherished because that's just not in that makeup. And yet I've heard of some people speaking about their sexuality as a gift. That's how I speak about it. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the being able to bond and love and care for other people, you know, sometimes we don't have time to go into the exegesis of this, but first Corinthians seven, there's that wonderful, wonderfully complicated thing where Paul seems to be advocating celibacy and it's unclear what is going on. It says, you know, the married man is careful about the things of his wife, the unmarried man careful about the things of the Lord. Like I said, we don't have time for the exegesis, but the, the Greek word there, merimanao, doesn't mean careful. It means anxious to the point of distraction. And what he's actually saying is a married man can be so anxious and worried about pleasing his wife, he's not giving enough attention to God. Well, the celibate person can be so worried about displeasing God, he's not pleasing God either. I mean, what Paul's actually saying in 1 Corinthians 7 is either extreme is wrong. That we should always be outward looking, A, to God, but B, to our fellow men and women. And I have had friends share with me the, 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 the love and the camaraderie and the companionship and the caring and the creativity and the other things they feel, which is they see as part of their sexuality, is something they wouldn't give up. You know, even if they were given the opportunity to flip the switch and, and have the mixed orientation marriage or be able to function sexually in a marriage, they wouldn't want to give up all the positive benefits of what they've discovered about themselves. And, and that's what I'm trying to listen to more and be more open to. I don't know if any of that is, is useful for you or your audience to hear, but... Yeah, well, thank you, Eric. Can I ask you a question about your devotional? Oh, yeah, sure. So sure. I, I just listened to it right before right before you came over, and you mentioned something that, that Jesus said to the, the young rich man. And oh yeah, yeah, and he and he goes away sorrying, and Jesus beholding him loves him. Is that the passage yeah, you're yeah. looking at? Yeah, pull that apart for us. <laughs> yeah, so this is of course a passage which appears in all three synoptics. That you know, a, a rich young man comes up to Jesus and says, "What should I have to eternal life?" And he says, well, "What are the what are, what does Moses tell you?" He says, "Well, you know, to to love God and to keep the commandments and not steal and do all these other things." And the man says, "I've done this through my youth." And then and Jesus says, "You know, one thing." do you have left to do? Sell all you have and come follow me. And he goes away sorrowing. And that's all Matthew and Luke say about it. But Mark, which theoretically is the earliest version of this, has Jesus say, look, beholding him, love him. And I actually learned this from Elaine. Elaine said, you know, Jesus loved that man, even though at that point he wasn't willing or able to do the utmost, sell everything and follow him. But Elaine said he still loved him. And how do we not know that a month, a year, 10 years later, he eventually did it? You know, and, and this is the whole judging thing, right? So uh, sometimes we get in trouble when we talk about loving our fellow men. When we love other people, it's not that we're not, we're loving them more than we love God. And I teach John, so I know all about, if you love me, keep my commandments. In fact, in Greek, it's even stronger. The, word, the verb tereo means to stand on watch, to guard, to keep, to await instructions. 
So if you love Jesus, you're just waiting. You're just not keeping the commandments he's given you. You're waiting for more. So I fully believe that loving God means keeping his commandments, which in my case includes teaching my children and my students and anyone who will listen what those commandments are. But I don't think we need to make this dichotomy that if we love someone who makes a different choice, that we're somehow not loving God. Yeah, and I just love the idea that, you know, that Jesus had just told him to do something and then he didn't do it. And Jesus loved him in that moment. In that moment. In that moment. And, you know, in that devotional, I talked a lot about the passage in Galatians, and there are parallels in, in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians as well, but also in 2 Nephi, about with God, there's not male or female, black or white, bond or free. All are alike to Christ. And, you know, once again, early on, what do the scriptures say about homosexuality? Nothing about orientation. But what the scriptures do say is that who you are shouldn't make a difference. You know, there are the things you can't change. And so those things that people couldn't change didn't matter. If you couldn't change it, that wasn't your problem. You were still part of the body of Christ. You were all alike to God. And now that we no longer say, as I was told growing up, that your sexuality was a choice, then we could add another phrase to that. Male or female, black or white, bond or free, gay or straight. Mm-hmm. The things you can't change, you're not responsible for. But you are still called. You know, once again, what does Jesus say about how we love each other? In that passage in Luke, sorry, is it? My scripture. If you don't know the thing. answer, just say Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when the woman comes in, oh, it's Luke 7. I'm sorry. It's right before, yeah, it's Luke 7. So it's the end of chapter 7 when Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee and the woman who was a sinner came in, you know, and cries and washes his feet. And I hate the title of that, that story. It's not the woman who's a sinner. Why don't we remember the good thing? The woman who loved much, right? And everyone's aghast that this woman who was, quote unquote, a sinner came into the dinner party. Because in the ancient world, this is another big word I can throw out for you. It's called commensiality. Who do you eat with? Because in the ancient world, who you ate with had to do with relationships, family, honor. And you wouldn't eat with someone from the outside or a Gentile or lower class or dishonorable or a sinner. But Jesus ignored that. Everyone's welcome at the table, including the Pharisees, including the self-righteous, right? It's not just the publicans and sinners that he's inviting in. He's inviting everyone, the righteous, the unrighteous, the self-righteous, and that's the table. You know, we've got this wonderful image each week, particularly now that we can start coming back to sacrament meeting, now as the pandemic wanes, that we gather around the sacrament table. And, you know, our Protestant friends call it communion. And I used to always think that was because we're communing with the Lord, right? We're taking the bread and water, and we're thinking about what Jesus has done for us, and we're feeling the Spirit. But it's also reenacting the Last Supper. Jesus was with the family he chose, his friends, his disciples, gathered around, sharing bread and wine. And we gather as a ward family or a church family or a group of friends, and we're, it doesn't matter if we're black or white, male or female, bond or free, straight or gay, we are part of the family of God. And you mentioned that devotional, I was sharing this with you before, some months after that, I had an old lady, I was doing a fireside in Orem, I don't remember what the occasion was, and she came up to me afterwards and said she had a grandson who had come out and his parents had rejected him. And he said, we haven't had anything to do with my grandson for you know months and months. And when I saw that devotional and talked about how we should love and reach out, I, I talked to my daughter and we had a discussion and it gave her the words to say to her husband, and now we have our grandson back in our family. And it wasn't anything I said. It was just preaching Jesus. It was just sharing the principles of the gospel. And you know, in that devotional, I don't know if any of your listeners want to go back and watch that. It was August 2018. I just use scriptures and the words of the really cited president, Elder Uchtdorf and Elder Holland and President Ballard. You know, it was all straight from the scriptures and the modern authorities. Once again, for those of us who aren't judges in Israel, if I'm not your bishop or stake president, your behavior is not my concern. Unless you're a common judge in Israel, don't even go there with behavior. Mm-hmm. Love, accept, and as Tom has said, wow, you know, because not only his family, but that new Canaan ward in Connecticut was so loving, it gave him the chance to come back. Whenever we push people away, we're completely destroying the chances that they'll come back or want to stay. Yeah, 
definitely. Anyway, thanks for having me. I'm sorry I talked so long and used big words. <laughs> well, well, Eric, thank you so much for, for coming, for, for sharing your expertise. And I mean, you used words I've never heard and said all kinds of things I didn't know. So, But we you. all knew the name Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the master. So, so Charlie, what do the scriptures say about homosexuality? Whatever I want them to. No, they say Jesus. Oh. <laughs> hey, the scriptures never say whatever you want them to say. I just wanted to see Ben's face. <laughs> the scriptures talk about behaviors, but the scriptures tell us Jesus loves us. No, th- this was really helpful. Thank you for for bringing your expertise. And yeah, like I have a lot of food for thought. I'm gonna go. Uh, and I hope it was useful. And if I if I said anything that was hurtful to any of your listeners or triggered anyone, I'm sorry. I know that sometimes those of us on the outside are like bulls in a teapot, china cap whatever the phrase is, China Bull shop. In the China shop. Yeah. And, and sometimes we say things that are very easy for us to say, and I know it's not always easy, and I'm sorry. No. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you thanks. so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, please consider leaving a review, following us on Instagram or Facebook at Questions from the Closet, or sharing this podcast with someone you love. And as always, please remember that we do not represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Brigham Young University. We are not trying to be prescriptive or tell anyone what to think or what to do. You heard three perspectives, and there are many, many more. We encourage you to listen to other voices and hear a wide variety of experiences. If you would like to submit a question or share a comment about today's episode, you can email us at questionsfromthecloset at gmail.com. Until next time.